18, we're going to finish the chapter this morning. If you need a Bible, what I want you to do, if you'd like to read along with this, as we go through verse 44 of Mark chapter 12, just raise your hand and we'll slip you a Bible. That's all you need to do. If you need a Bible, if you don't have one, it's yours to take. Take it home with you. But one condition, you've got to read it, okay? That's all I ask. And uh, so if you need a Bible to borrow or you need a Bible, just raise your hand and uh, we'll slip it to you. Turn to Mark. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Mark chapter 12. If you'll turn there, we'll start at verse 18. While you're turning there, um, those of you who have read the book of Joshua, do you recall that as the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River and they went into the land to possess, that land that God had given to them, finally after 40 years of their wilderness wandering, they came into the promised land, but they had to do battle against the inhabitants of the land, against the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Hittites, all the different tribes of the Canaanites were possessing the land at that time. And God promised them, I will drive them out as you go in to possess what it is that I've given to you, that land. And so in chapter 11 of Joshua, we see that those different tribes, they banded together to come against God's people. And they would fight against Joshua and the men of Israel. And it is written there in that chapter that the enemies of God numbered the sand that is on the seashores. And, and so oftentimes, the enemies of God will band together to come against him or the work that he is doing. You might experience that personally in your own life. As you go to work, maybe you feel like those at work are, are banding together, coming together to come against you because they know that you're a Christian. And you feel like, I'm so outnumbered, and, and all these people that come down on me and come against me, or maybe in your neighborhood, or maybe even in your own family, you might be the only Christian that is in your family, and you feel very much come against and, and outnumbered. Well, in our text here, what we see here in Mark's gospel, that Jesus, in his last week of his life before his crucifixion, we see that the enemies of our Lord have banded together to try to trap him, try to back him into a, a corner, to ensnare him, have a reason for him to be arrested so that they might destroy him. We saw that Jesus, in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, went into the temple and overturned the money changers' tables. He drove out those who sold doves and, and lambs, and as we discussed, Jesus did a very remarkable thing that Mark's gospel records, and that is he would not let them carry any more wares through the temple. That is, he pretty much stopped the temple worship that was taking place on that day. And so Jesus, as he rebuked those religious leaders, he said, it is written that my house is a house of prayer for all nations, and now you've made it a den of thieves. And so here are the religious elite, that is the Pharisees, and then you had the sect of the Herodians. You had the Sadducees and the scribes, the leaders of Israel. They, at this time, have banded together to see how they might have Jesus be destroyed. They came to him, and, and they're asking him questions. They said, by what authority do you do these things? And we saw how Jesus asked them about the baptism of John. 
And then in chapter 12, as we opened up this chapter, he would tell the parable of the wicked vine dressers. He would tell that parable of the vineyard that the owner had, of course, speaking of God the Father who owns the vineyard, and it was given to another to take care of that vineyard, speaking of the people of Israel, speaking of those religious leaders. And it was the owner of the vineyard that had sent his servants to come and receive what was due the owner, and yet they would stone the servants, they would beat them up, they uh, would turn against them. And, of course, Jesus, speaking about those prophets that had come on the scene in times past and were rejected. And then, finally, they would end up rejecting the owner of the vineyard's son, who was sent to them, of course, speaking of Jesus, the Son of God. They would kill the owner's son and cast him out of the vineyard. And Jesus, in that, was indirectly answering their question, by whose authority? and what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus was telling them that I am the owner's son, the owner of the vineyard being God. And they knew that Jesus was speaking about them being those wicked vine dressers that cast out God's servants and killed his son. And then Jesus at that time would quote from Psalm 118 that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So they would question his authority. Then the Herodians and the Pharisees came together. They banded together and they would question his integrity. And you might recall that these two groups, the Pharisees, the Herodians, had gotten together as we saw clear back in chapter three earlier in Jesus' ministry up in the Galilee. And they would be upset with Jesus because they felt that Jesus had violated the Sabbath by healing that man with the withered hand there in the synagogue in Capernaum. And before that event, the Pharisees, the Herodians, never really got together on anything. You see, a lot of times people that come against us, they don't have anything to do with each other, but yet they will come together, band together with their common cause against you, you being a Christian. And here we see that it was the Pharisees, the Herodians, even though they didn't like each other, they didn't get along with each other, the reason they now band together is because they were ones that had a common cause now. The Herodians were the leaders that welcomed and supported the Roman occupation of Israel. The Pharisees hated the Roman occupation. The Herodians ruled over the people politically. The Pharisees were ruling over the people religiously. And these two groups, always fighting amongst themselves, always putting each other down, they found this common cause now concerning Jesus and how they might put him to death. And they had planned that clear back in Mark chapter 3 as we saw in that chapter. So here they are in this week of Passover, and they would come to him, these two groups, they would question him whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And what they were hoping to do was to trap Jesus, because if he said, yes, go ahead and pay taxes to Caesar, then the people who were there, probably this has taken place on their southern steps of the temple. We showed you the excavations that they've just discovered recently, those southern steps that led up to the Temple Mount. When we talk about the temple here, it's talking about the temple proper, that area of the Temple Mount where the people would gather, where they would come for their sacrifices in the feast that they would celebrate. And here is Jesus on those southern steps 
large steps and crowds would meet and he would be able to teach them. Here they're coming, trying to trap him before the people. And so they're hoping if Jesus says, yes, pay those taxes to Rome, to Caesar Tiberius, then they would view Jesus as a friend of Rome, as a lover of Rome, a traitor to us. If Jesus would say, no, don't pay your taxes to those rotten Romans, then they would go down the street, find some Roman soldiers, and say, there's a man down there at the temple leading an insurrection. He's leading a rebellion against Rome. He's telling people not to pay their taxes. And so they thought they had Jesus trapped. Whatever he answered, there's no way that he was going to get out of it. But we saw that Jesus, with incredible wisdom, of course, godly wisdom, he would take a coin, and he would say, render the things that are Caesar's to him, his image is on this coin, coin, and render to God the things that are God. And it says that the people marveled at him. So here they are, they're questioning his authority, they're questioning his integrity, and now here comes the Sadducees, verse 18, as we pick up our text, and they're going to question his theology. But let's first pray. Father, we ask that right now, as we begin to read your word, that you would just bless this time, that our hearts would be opened up to you. And Lord, we want to learn, we want to apply. Lord, we desire to, to be ones that we just grow in our knowledge and love of you. So bless this time. I pray that we would be still in our seats and we would remember that cell phones need to be turned down and, and Lord, just help us be attentive this morning as we have a few minutes in your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in Mark chapter 12, verse 18, we do read, Then some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. So the Sadducees, another sect of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they were the priests for the most part. And it's interesting because when you read about them, they weren't really spiritual men at all. They were materialists. They had gained control much of the religious system. Uh, they didn't believe in much of anything. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They did not believe in the resurrection, as is noted here in Mark's gospel. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't really believe in much of anything. And Mark points out in our text that these Sadducees, being conservative and worldly-minded and ready to cooperate with the Romans, which helped them maintain their privileged status and position, they come now to Jesus and they ask him a question concerning the resurrection, which they didn't believe in. And so they asked him, saying, verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and, and dying he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring, and the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. And therefore in the resurrection, verse 23, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. So the Sadducees only believed in those first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in the other books as being inspired by God. They're in the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the, the Psalms were inspired. They just thought they were books of poems. Uh, they didn't believe in, in the prophets, the books of the prophets. They only believed in those first five books, the Law of Moses, the books of Moses. And they came asking this question, with this attitude of joining in with the Pharisees and the Herodians, again, in trying to trap Jesus. So they make up this ridiculous situation about seven brothers who take on the same wife. 
And what they're basing their question on is on Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's, it's part of the Mosaic law. And in the law, it said this, that if you married a woman and before you had any children together, if you ended up dying, the husband, it was your brother's responsibility to marry her. And the, the, the first son that was born would be then named after the dead brother. It would be named after him, so his name would not die in Israel. That was a big deal in ancient Israel. That was a very important thing, inheritance, that your name continued on. So God had made in the law provision for that. You're married, and you don't have any children, and you end up dying, then you are to marry your nearest relative, your brother, your kinsman redeemers, what it was called back in those times, and what it was referred to, goel, in the Hebrew. And so your name would continue on in the inheritance. And can you imagine the discussions? I mean, just think about this. That went around the Jewish dinner tables as perhaps the oldest son came home and said, hey, I'm getting married, and the brothers would say, hey, just wait a minute here. You know, you got pictures, whatever it might be, because we may end up marrying her over time. <laughs> we want to know about her, because it was a possibility that the younger brothers, you know, could end up marrying her down the road. And of course, in the Old Testament, Book of Ruth, a beautiful story that we have in the Old Testament, many of you are familiar with it, Elimelech and his wife Naomi from Bethlehem. They took their two sons. They would go across the east side of the Jordan River over to Moab because there was famine in Bethlehem. And so Elimelech died. His two sons ended up marrying while they were over there, Moabitess, and, and they ended up dying, and they had no children. So their name was about ready to die, the family name. And you know the story how Naomi would, of course, come back with her daughter-in-law Ruth to Bethlehem and as you read that beautiful love story it would be later on that Boaz who was a relative of Elimelech ended up marrying Ruth he became as uh, known as that Goel the, the family redeemer the kinsman redeemer he's the one that would redeem the family name and having a child through Ruth as they would marry and that child's name was Obed and Obed had a son named Jesse. And Jesse would have a son named David, which we're studying about his life on Wednesday night. It's a very powerful study as we look at the sweet psalmist of Israel who had a heart after God. So in the tracking of the lineage of the life of Christ, it goes back through Ruth and Boaz. So this whole idea of a kinsman redeemer is tied to the lineage of Jesus Christ, which is very significant because that's what Jesus did for you and for me. He's our kinsman redeemer, isn't he? He came to redeem you and I. You and I were about ready to die. You see, we couldn't save ourselves. But Jesus came, became a man, so that he would be our kinsman redeemer. And just like Boaz took on a bride, Ruth, Jesus, the greater than Boaz, is our kinsman redeemer, takes on a bride, you and me, that is the bride of Christ. So back to our text here. Here are the Sadducees. They go an extra step. They create this hypothetical case. Seven brothers who took on the same wife, and none of them have children. So in the resurrection, if there is one, Whose wife is she? They were trying to show that the whole idea of the resurrection was 
complicated, that it creates problems. Because you see, you have these seven guys that are now fighting over the one woman, for she had been married to all seven, but none of them had any children. So they give this picture of this big confusion that's going on in heaven. So whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus answered, verse 24, and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Jesus saying that you are wrong for two reasons. One, you do not know the scriptures, and secondly, you do not know the power of God. There is no marriage given in heaven. They will be like the angels. Now, people who are married usually have two reactions when they read this text, what Jesus says, when they read that no marriage will be given in heaven. One reaction sometimes is, praise God. And I know none of you feel that way. Or oftentimes, people will say, oh, that's kind of disappointing. You mean Ted and I, we won't be married in heaven? Because our love is forever and we'll forever be together. Well, if you're both saved, you will be together forever. You just won't be married to each other. Of course, it's the Mormons that a very important part of their doctrine, they believe that, it, that you are married for eternity. You see, when Mormons get married, they will go to their temple, and there they are sealed for eternity, and they believe that as you are sealed for eternity, that both of you, if you're good enough and worthy enough, that you can progress in heaven, and that you can become gods yourself, and you can create a universe and a world, and that you will have spirit children in heaven that will populate that world. That's part of the Mormon doctrine. So what you can do is you can take them to this text here in Mark chapter 12 and say, sorry, but Jesus himself said that in the resurrection there will be no marriage, but we will be like the angels in that manner. And I just want to say this quickly for those of you who may feel like, well, I don't like the thought that my husband and I won't be married in heaven. You know, heaven is going to be so wonderful and so incredible and so glorious that your relationship with your spouse your relationship that you'll have with family members, children, is going to be better than it is now. We will enjoy those relationships somehow even more. And that includes with our spouse in heaven, more than we do here now, even though you may be one that you're so in love with your spouse, and that's a great thing. You're not going to be disappointed when you get to heaven, is what I want to say. So be a good cheer. So Jesus went on to say, now concerning the dead, haven't you read that when the Lord spoke to Moses at the burning bush, that he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus, taking them back to Scripture, to Exodus, one of the books that they did believe in, and says God is the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. So Jesus proves them wrong. He says, you're mistaken, guys. Heaven is very real. You'll be like the angels, not given in marriage. And God is the God of the living. And so verse 28, then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked them, which is the first commandment of all? 
So the Pharisees and the Herodians came asking questions, then the Sadducees, and now there was a certain scribe. They, he was like a lawyer that was there, and, and he's watching this conversation, listening to it going on between Jesus and those other religious leaders. And I think that perhaps he's thinking, boy, Jesus, the way he's answering, he's captivated by Jesus and the answers that he gave. And when he heard them reasoning together, he perceived that Jesus was really coming up with some excellent answers, real wisdom. So I think that this scribe here at this point, he asked Jesus a very honest question. You see, the other two groups that we looked at asked dishonest questions. That is, they weren't looking for an answer. They, they were looking for an argument. They wanted to prove that Jesus was wrong. Again, trying to trick him, trying to trap him, trying to have a reason, of course, to accuse him. And oftentimes, people will ask you and me questions, particularly when they know that we are Christians, and they're not sincere questions, are they? They're not honest questions. But what they want to do is they want to argue with you. They want to try to set you up and make you look foolish. They want to try to prove you wrong in some way. When that happens, listen. When that happens, you do what Jesus did. You take him to the scriptures. So Jesus said here, have you not read? Is it not written? Take them to God's word and you leave them there. And so the scribe here comes asking Jesus, which is the first commandment? What's the most important thing? It's a question that's asked today oftentimes by people. In verse 29, Jesus answered him, The first of all, the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. This is the first commandment. So Jesus, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we have there what is known as the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It would be on their feast days that the Jews would come as they gathered there at the temple and they would chant this, Hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the Lord our God is one. When Jewish mothers would hold their infants in their laps close to themselves, they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, the Lord your God is one. The primary thing, the most important thing is that you must know the true and the living God and that you shall love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And Jesus gives a second in verse 31 as he says that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You love God and you love others. It's interesting. The Jews at this time loved to discuss, just as people today do, which parts of the law are more weightier than the others. And as you read their, their writings, it's interesting that at this time, what the scribes had done is they had taken the Ten Commandments and they had made 613 commandments. They expanded on the commandments of God. They had 248 affirmative commandments, positive commandments, 365 negative, negative commandments, as many as the days of the year. It totaled 613 commandments that they had. The Pharisees were the ones that were trying to keep all 613 commandments. Now David, he comes along in Psalm 15, he reduces the commandments down to 11. Who may dwell in your holy hill, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart and so forth, David writes. Micah the prophet later on, he takes it down to three in Micah chapter 6. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. 
So it goes from 613 to 11 in Psalm 15 to 3 in Micah to 2, that is, love God and love people. And then Paul says, as he takes this concept from Jesus, saying all of the law is fulfilled in one word, and that is this, love. And that's what makes our Christianity so wonderful and so glorious because it's very, very simple. Do you know that? You love the Lord and you love others. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In verse 34, Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God, but after that no one dared question him. So this scribe, intrigued with the answer, he thought, All right, that's good. I'll buy into that. And he repeats it to confirm it in his mind. For there's only one God and none other. And you are to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you are to love others. And that's the key. Perhaps he was beginning to understand that that is more important than the religious activities and performances that you see around here at this time. God is more concerned with us about the inner attitude and not just the outward performance of life. We've talked about that as we've been looking at the life of David in the Old Testament. You look at David, we compared him with Saul as we went through 1 Samuel. That David was the one that truly loved the Lord. And we're going to continue to see that as we travel into 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, it was David, he's leaving Jerusalem because his son Absalom had undermined his father. And the people of Israel, their hearts were turned towards Absalom, away from David. And so David had to leave Jerusalem. And he's walking up the Mount of Olives barefoot, and his head is covered, and he's weeping. And it was because there had been some adversity within David's family. We study David's life. We study and see the successes that he had as an individual, as a king, bringing unity and prosperity to the nation. David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. He had many successful events and things that happened. He was a great warrior from the time that he was a teenager that defeated Goliath up until the time that he defeated all his enemies around him. And even though David had many successes, both as king and as a follower of God, he also, as we have seen and will continue to see, had failings as well. And in those failings, that would include with his family and with raising his children. And the adversity that he was experiencing at the hands of his own son was the result of what Nathan the prophet had told David what would happen because of his sin with Bathsheba. And these things are all coming down on David. He's leaving Jerusalem because his son and the nation had turned against him. And he gets to the top of the Mount of Olives and he begins to worship the Lord. He begins to say, if God wants me to return to Jerusalem, he will bring me back. But let him do to me as seems good to him. He was more concerned about how God felt at that time. And you see, as we continue to look at David, we get a glimpse of why he was called a man after God's own heart. He was the one that truly loved God in his heart. And David wrote that one thing that I desire, one thing that I desire of the Lord is that I might seek after him and dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. If the Lord was to ask us this morning, what is one thing truly 
that you desire, what is it? Now, we know that Saul, as we saw in 1 Samuel, on the other hand, he was head and shoulders above everyone else, but he wanted to be seen of men, just like Absalom's David's son who tried to take the throne from his dad. Absalom, the scripture says, he was a very handsome man. There was no blemish on him. He had a chariot and 50 runners next to him. And the people looked at him and said, Man, Absalom, you're impressive. You seem so, so together. But you see, Absalom just wanted to be seen of men. He would go to the gate there where people were waiting to hear justice from King David and his counselors. And it was Absalom that said, If I was the king, then you would really see justice. I'd really do you well. You see, he was buttering the people up, but his heart was wrong towards God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, as we discovered that Saul was the same way, the first king of Israel, God had told him to wipe out all the Amalekites, wipe them all out, the sheep and the oxen, and Saul returns from the battle. He sets up an image of himself. And he comes back with the best of the sheep of the oxen, with Agai, king of the Amalekites. And he says, that I perform all that the Lord has commanded me to. And Samuel the prophet met Saul and said, Really? Then what's the sound of the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What's the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And who's this that you brought back? What do you mean you perform all that the Lord said? And Samuel would say to Saul, Because you have disobeyed, the Lord is going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to another, one who has a heart after God. Because it's better to obey than the sacrifice. And Saul said, I have sinned. I've sinned. It seemed like he repented, but he didn't. Because he goes on and he says, Honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel. You see, his heart wasn't right because he wanted to look good before men. Samuel, honor me before the people so I look good. You see, when David said, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice that Saul never did that. And notice that Saul never wrote a psalm to the Lord. And it was David that wrote over and over again as he poured out his heart to God, I will praise you with all of my heart. It wasn't just lip service or trying to look righteous before the people. He truly had a heart after God. And so here are the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they looked like they were so righteous. And Jesus is going to address them in the next few verses as we continue reading and I hope that what we are beginning to understand is this. It's not about being religious. It's about relationship. And loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and understanding and loving others. And that's what being a Christian is all about. It's not just about rituals and performance and I've got to do more and I've got to get the approval of God and I've got to look good before people. It's Lord, I love you. And with that love, I want to live for you and praise you with all of my heart. You see, Jesus quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, and I want to press a point and remind you again, for those of you who are here, when we went through the book of Deuteronomy, you go through Deuteronomy, and a lot of Christians skip Deuteronomy. What do you mean the law? It's just the law. Deuteronomy means the second law. That is, that generation that was getting ready to go into the promised land, they needed to hear the law that was given to them nearly 40 years earlier at Mount Sinai. They needed to be spiritually ready to go into the promised land. So Moses, in those 30 days, has given them the law, going through the law. Keep my statutes. Keep my commandments. Here is the law given to you. So you 
you can be ready spiritually as a nation as you go in to, to take the land. But there's something that was in Deuteronomy that you don't want to miss, and that is the Lord saying, Love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, Israel, that you would have a heart for me. And you see, yes, we want to know God's word. We want to know his truth. We want to know his commandments. We want to know his principles. But the most important thing is to love him because what is in your heart will be worked out in your life. To love him means you're going to live for him and desire to please him. And you can look outwardly like you really got it together. But as Jesus will say to these Pharisees, and these Sadducees, as Matthew records, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look all polished on the outward, but inward you're dead. You're dead towards God. So here Jesus touching on something very important here. And he says to this scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But our Lord points out that he's still not laying hold of the kingdom of God. In verse 35, then Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, how is it that, scribes, uh, that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David call, himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Jesus was not quite finished yet. They had been asking him many difficult questions, and now it was his turn to ask a question. And the question that he's asking is, how can Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? You see, to understand what Jesus, the point that he's driving home here, you need to know what their thinking was, what the thinking of the Jews was. They accepted that the Messiah was going to be the son of David. That was no question. That was plain in Scripture. They looked and thought of Messiah, though, as being a mere man, a man who would be a military leader like David. If you go to Israel today and you talk to the Jews about Messiah, those who are looking for Messiah to come, they are looking for a man who's going to come, a political leader, one who's going to lead the nation into peace. They're tired of war, one who's going to prosper the nation. That's what they're looking for. They're not looking for someone who is deity like Jesus. And here is Jesus quoting from Psalm 110 showing that David himself said by the Holy Spirit and again, the Sadducees and people today will say, well, the Psalms that David wrote are a nice set of poems. We need to remember that Jesus said they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. These Psalms that we have in the Scripture are God-breathed. But the Jews were looking for the Messiah to be the seed of David, the son of David, a man who would be a military leader, a political leader, no question about that. But Jesus was claiming to be more than a man. His authority was not just from man. It was from God. And part of the reason that the religious leaders could not tolerate Jesus is because he did claim to be more than mere man, but he claimed to be God. Jesus said to the Jews in John chapter 8, Before Abraham was, I am. And what happened? The religious leaders immediately picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because they knew that he was claiming to be God. It was God that was asked at the burning bush by Moses, What is your name? And God said to Moses there in Exodus chapter 3, I am that I am. When Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. He was using that name of deity. He was saying that I am the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And that is why they picked up those stones to stone him. 
Jesus would go on to say that I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he was up in Capernaum, remember, as we read that they dropped that paralytic through the roof there in Capernaum, and, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, and the religious leaders are saying, who can forgive sin but God? Jesus said that you might know that I have authority. Stand up and walk. The religious leaders were right. Only God can forgive sin. Yet Jesus claiming that he was more than a man. He claims that he is Lord. The Messiah was to be the seed of David. They couldn't dispute that. But David referred to Messiah not only as his son on one hand, but his Lord on the other. And that was a real dilemma for those religious leaders. It was something that, that they were to think about, and they couldn't answer or respond to this question. It's the key to the identity and the authority of Jesus. Jesus was the son of David, and at the same time, he's the son of God. He is the God-man. He is fully man, fully God. This is where he derived his authority. And this is what the religious leaders refused to acknowledge. The reason I'm pointing this out, because today, you see, there are those who claim to be religious, but they will say that Jesus, oh, he was a good leader. He had many followers. He's an impressive teacher. He's a good man. A lot of good teachings on how we should live life. I, I believe in the things that Jesus taught and how we should live life, but they fall short of the critical point of his divinity, that he was God in human flesh, and that is what set him apart from all men and what qualified him to be the Savior of the world. And so now Jesus gives his last verbal confrontation to his opponents before his arrest and execution, verse 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. If you want a fuller expansion of what Jesus said to them, go to Matthew's gospel. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, love others, but the religious leaders had missed it. Outwardly, they looked religious with all of their rituals, ceremonies, wearing the long robes. They would stand on the street corners and say their long prayers. They would fast and go to the marketplace and look all gaunt and their hair messed up and their cheeks sucked in. And the people said, look how righteous they are. Jesus, uh, Josephus, that is, the Jewish historian, tells us that some of the Pharisees, before they made their contribution to the collection box, they would actually summon the trumpeter to go before them to get everybody's attention. Jesus would make reference to that. The Pharisees would come up and proudly you know, deposit a bag of money into the treasury chest. They wanted everybody to see their giving and hear their prayers and how religious they were. And again, I want to remind us that the same thing can happen today. The ministries and churches, you know, can make a big deal. Who gives the most? And, you know, we get all into the titles and we get in all into looking religious or doing or whatever it might be. Jesus here is simply telling us, beware of the false expression of godliness. These guys wanted the best seats in the synagogues. They loved to be greeted and told how spiritual they were. They said their long prayers. They came with the pomp and the you know, intelligence and with the pride. And Jesus said, beware. Beware because they devour widows' houses. They come to be served, not to serve. They come to be first, not to be last. They come to exalt themselves, not to deny themselves and humble themselves. 
And what I'm simply saying, if we're not careful, we can fall into that same trap. It's a temptation. It can be a temptation that I want people to see how godly I am. I want the place of honor. I want to have the title. I want to impress people with my godly talk, by my knowledge of Scripture. I want to see people, all my activity, but in reality, we can be far from God. Those things are good. But the thing is, where is our heart? And I think that's what the Lord is saying to us this morning. So the question can be for all of us, if we could turn our hearts inside out to where others could see it, what would they see? Honestly, what would they see? We can't see each other's heart, but God does. And his eyes go to and fro across the whole earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts, whose hearts are loyal or perfect towards him. That is a heart that truly loves him and desires to want to know him and serve him in humility. So Jesus now is withdrawing himself from this religious leaders. This is the last day of Jesus' public you know, ministry or ministry here in Jerusalem. He's going to end his day here. He's on the steps probably of the, of the temple. And he warns the people about the religious leaders. And I picture Jesus getting up, and now he goes up on the Temple Mount. He goes through that area, which is called the Court of the Women, the Court of the Gentiles, where the Court of the Women would be. It's evening time. The people are pretty much dispersed to so go to their homes, to so go to the places where they are staying. And there's only a few people. And now Jesus, after facing his foes, now finds a friend, verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much then one poor widow came and threw in two mites which makes a chondrons and so he called his disciples to himself and said to them assuredly i say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury for they put in out of their abundance but she out of her poverty verse 44 tells us put in all that she had her whole livelihood jesus went over and watched how they gave in verse 41 not what they gave people came they put in large amounts some of them here this poor widow threw in two mites which is worth pennies and Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I'm telling you the truth about this woman. She has given more than all those who had given, for they gave out of their abundance. She has put in all that she had. You see, God doesn't measure your gifts by the amount, but how you give with your heart and how it costs you. And here's one that obviously loves God. Jesus said, render the things... He had just gotten through saying that. Render the things to Caesar that belong to Caesar's. You render to God the things that belong to God. And you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus gets up and he walks up on the temple and he says to his disciples, there's an example. There's an example of one who's giving. And she is given, and it means more than all the outward performances of all these combined. She came not with trumpets blowing, but humbly she would give all that she had, and God saw it and honored her. And you see, that encourages me, and I hope it does you as well. Because oftentimes we can think, Lord, the way that, that I give to you, I need to give to you in a way that's showing something spectacular or big. I, I want to win a lot of people to Christ. I want people to, to see my ministry. When I give them my gifts, my abilities, 
You see, we've got to be careful we don't do it with the wrong motives. They're selfish motives. They're do it grudgingly. Where we say that, you know what, I'm not being noticed. But God sees what it is that we do, and he sees our heart, and he loves a cheerful giver, and he wants us to give openly, willingly, freely, humbly. He wants us to be cheerful givers. It was David that he said at the end of his life, I will not give to the Lord that which cost me nothing. In our giving to the Lord, may we sacrificially give of our time, give of our resources, may we give of our hearts first of all. And to say this morning, Lord, search me and try me, search my heart. And may all of us examine our hearts and allow the Lord to examine us this morning as we just come humbly before him and honestly say that, Lord, I want to center my life around you, but I know that the greatest thing is to love you and to love others. And as you do, you're going to give freely and humbly. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that Jesus, he gave him himself freely, gave of his life dying for us because of his love for us. That's why he did it. And he loves us more than we can possibly imagine, and now we can love him as we walk in that love. And we find out how God intended for us to live rich, fulfilled, filled with the Spirit, having his joy and peace, wisdom and strength and help, living that abundant, exciting exciting life in Christ as we give our hearts fully to him. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time, and Lord, we thank you for... These words of Jesus.